All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So there we were on the floor of the Virginia House of Delegates. We're debating the minimum wage. And I made the argument that if you raise the minimum wage, if the government basically engages in a form of price fixing, that that could have adverse effects, not just for small business owners, not just for people that do business with these organizations, but it could have adverse effects on those people that are actually seeking those jobs because what you've effectively done in the law is you've made it more expensive to hire them. And one of my colleagues got up, who's very well educated, PhD in economics, MIT, and we had an exchange. And what I found fascinating about that exchange is that later on, a lot of my colleagues on the left just said, oh my gosh, she did such a great job refuting your argument. And I was confused because I certainly answered her questions and I'm sure she feels like she answered my questions. But later on, what I kept getting hit with is, well, she's an expert. We're going to discuss today on whether or not that is a valid argument. Does someone being a, quote, expert in a particular field mean that they're automatically correct? Because I think a lot of us have been bludgeoned with that sort of argumentation over the last few years, and many of us are starting to become frustrated with it as the experts, or so-called experts, continually prove to be wrong on critical issues. All of that coming up on this episode. And another question we will be answering today, thanks to Tina, is can you have an opinion if you're not an expert? Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. We would love to get your thoughts on the argumentation that we discuss in this episode in our volley chat, which you can go by visiting the description of this podcast, click that link, join, and say hello. We look forward to seeing you there. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good person. With us, back with us, my beautiful bride, Queen of the Bees, Tina. Hello, everyone. Happy to have you back, Tina. Thank you. Our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. Hey. Our producer of producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking, Nicholas Hamilton. Thank you for having me, Nick. Okay. So we're going to jump right into this because we've got a lot to cover. Um, but here's, here's the value proposition for all of you listening out here. We're going to cover a couple different topics that I think are really important. One is, and this is this is pretty important, what constitutes good argumentation? What, what differentiates between someone just having an opinion on something and something making a good argument? And, and a good argument can have an empirical component. That's more of what you consider like your evidence-based, your data-based arguments. But it should also be, it needs, also needs to be logically sound, which means that it follows certain principles of argumentation. And we're going to go over what are the laws of logic. Okay. But then we're going we're gonna to go into something else that I think is really important here. And, and it's, a, it's a discussion that needs to be had, especially now. And that is, what in the heck makes you an expert? 
Because clearly, we have very different views of what expertise means. So we're going to look at the actual definition. We're going to look at some documentation from Harvard on ways that they could judge expertise. And of course, we're going to go to, quite frankly, one of my, my favorite people ever, Thomas Sowell, to actually get his take on this as well. And you're going to be able to leave this conversation, leave this podcast, having a much better understanding of what is expertise and how do we have productive conversations that are empirically um, rigorous and logically valid. All right, so let's jump right in. First things first, what are the laws of logic? Like, what do we mean when we, when we hear this? And this is going to be interesting, especially for some of the conversations that we hear today, because most, most of our, of our thinking is built upon these simple rules, which up until very recently was pretty much generally agreed upon, except maybe within some, like some theistic circles. So here we go. Here's the, here's the three laws of logic. In some places, there's a fourth. We'll discuss that briefly. But here's the three that pretty much everyone agrees on. The first one is the law of identity. All right. So what's the law of identity? And we're going to read this up. The law of identity says that if a statement such as it is raining is true, then the statement is true. More generally, it says that the statement is the same thing as itself and it's different from everything else applied to all uh, applied to all reality. The law of identity says that everything is itself and not something else. That sounds really confusing because it's like logical language. Let me make it real simple. When we talk about identity, a particular thing or a particular statement, right, has unique characteristics that differentiates it from everything else. And what they're simply saying in, in the law of identity is that if, if something is true, then it is, then it is true. If something is, uh, has a, a unique characteristic that distinguishes it between something else, then it is that thing and it's not the other things. So I've got a question. How can you tell if something is true? I mean, I guess in the case of it's raining, you could go outside and see if it's raining. Well, that's, that's the thing. That would be the unique characteristics that would make that statement true. Right, that, that would give the identity of that statement or the identity of that thing. Right, well, it like, would have to a, reflect reality. Yeah, a person is a person. A person is not a dog. Right, a dog is a dog. A dog is. How do we know that? How do we know that's true? Well, it has to do with the unique characteristics that we use to distinguish between the person and the dog. Something tells me postmodernists are not going to appreciate <laughs> this episode. <laughs> well, let's let, let's go to this. The second one is the law of non-contradiction that says that a statement such as "it is raining" cannot be both true and false in the same sense. Right. And what that means is these two things exclude each other. It can't so, be raining and not raining at the yes, same time. It can't be raining and not raining at the same time. At the same location. Because if it's raining, then it's not not raining. And yeah. if it's not raining, then it isn't raining. Now, again, the, what they say is the same sense. So it could be raining in Culpeper, Virginia and not raining in New York City. Yeah. Right. But that's not a contradiction because there's a qualifier in there that actually makes sense and reflects reality. Yeah. Right. But. And we're going to go into because there's a there's there's a lot of modern philosophers within the kind of the postmodernist realm yeah. that attempt to deny the law of non contradiction. And there's a really easy way uh, to refute them when they make this claim. The other one is the law of the excluded middle. All right, and what this means is it says that a statement such as "it is raining" is either true or false. There isn't an alternative. And the way I kind of like to describe this is like there's no escape hatch. You can't say that oh well within this cosmic reality. No, the, the qualifier that you use. So it's perfectly fine to say it is raining in Culpeper. It is not raining in New York because those are not exclusive. But you can't say 
Yeah, it, it's raining where I'm at, and it's not raining where I'm at at the same time, right? And there's there's no there's no some middle ground that would make that statement true. That statement would have to either be true or false. That's it. All right. So law of identity and, and mathematically, th this is the way it works. Law of identity is P is P, right? Law of non-contradiction is P is not non-P, right? So something cannot be one thing and then the opposite of that thing at the same time. And the law of excluded middle is that it's either one or the other. It's either one or the other. It's either a true statement or it's a false that statement. That is such a binary view <laughs> that you take, Nick. <laughs> well, and it's amazing because you can look you can look some of this up. And and a lot of the groups, like the the site that we have here comes from a, actually in a Christian apologetics website. But for anybody that might say, well, well, you're, you're relying on theology. No, you, you can actually go to secular websites and they'll say the same thing. Bertrand Russell talked about this as well, who was a, you know, a, renowned, a world-renowned atheist. Uh, but they talk about the laws of logic because these are critical for establishing the rules on how we argue and how we debate. All right. Now, within, within logic, you have obviously logical fallacies, all right? And we have kind of two types of fallacies. There's formal fallacies and there's informal fallacies. So the larger category, a logical, a logical fallacy are flawed, deceptive, or false arguments that can be proven wrong with reasoning. And there's two main types. The formal fallacy is an argument with a premise and a conclusion that doesn't hold up to scrutiny, right? So a lot of, we, we sometimes hear the word non sequitur. So a formal fallacy is something that you um, something that you started with your premise or your conclusion is demonstrably false before we even get into the method of argumentation you use, right? That's a formal fallacy. An informal fallacy is an error in the form, content, or context of the argument, and that's where we can get into a whole host of things like you know ad hominem attacks, or an ad hominem attack is when you make an argument and I attack you instead of your argument right? Or a straw man fallacy. That's where you, I create a weaker version of your argument and then treat it as if it, that is your argument, right? So we see these all the time in politics, both sides engage in these sorts of like ad hominem attacks. Another one is like hasty generalizations, right? And so we can, it, all you have to do is you can go Google a list of informal fallacies and there's all kinds of websites that will take you through these. But the one I kind of want to discuss today, because it's relevant to this whole topic of expertise, is what we call the appeal to authority fallacy. So an appeal to authority fallacy is a formal fallacy in which it is argued that because a perceived authority figure believes a proposition to be true, that the proposition must therefore be true, right? That's an appeal to authority fallacy. So Dr. Fauci right, has the science, the, the science, right, says that you should do X, Y, or Z. Therefore, X, Y, or Z is true. Like his conclusion is true because he's the one saying it. That's an appeal to authority. Now, some people will kind of get this wrong and they, they will say that, well, this means that you shouldn't reference experts when you're, when you're making an argument for something. No, that's not true. Referencing an expert can be a useful way to add uh, additional relevance to the argument that you're making. But if it's all you're using to make your argument, well, then now you're, you're running the danger of actually doing an appeal to authority because now it looks like you're making your argument not based off of its own merits. You're making an argument because, well, this person said it, and so therefore it must be true. No, an expert saying something, right? the fact that they're an expert should give us a certain degree of confidence that what they're saying is true, but it doesn't make it true. 
right? And and one of the you'll hear this all the time. I, I see this all the time on my Twitter page. I'll make a comment about economic policy or inflation. And I'll, I'll get leftists coming on going, oh, I didn't realize you were an economist. No, you know who the economists were? Ben Bernanke was an economist. <laughs> the guy who... Uh, Janet Yellen. The, the guy that, that, <laughs> that is probably more responsible for the catastrophe yeah. that we're in than anybody else was just given an, an, the Nobel Prize in economics. Like, <laughs> yeah. they're laughing at you. Yeah. I, it, it's so, like, that is a perfect example of the, uh, from my point of view, that's a perfect example of the, the flaws within the appeal to authority yeah. fallacy. Because you can point to somebody like Bernanke, who just a few episodes ago, we went into detail like pulling up like papers that he wrote from 12 yeah. years ago, outlining like, you know, his economic, you know, thesis on how to restore the economy after the 2008 crash and how that led to a giant bubble. And we can point to that and say it was because of his policies that a huge chunk of the problems that we're in are currently taking place. And yet he's an expert, right? Yeah. He, he used to be chairman of the, uh, of the federal reserve and now he's, he's, an a expert Nobel times laureate. two because he won yeah. a Nobel Prize. He's a Nobel laureate. It went, and it was interesting. In the discussion that I had on the House floor, um, I want to say her dissertation advisor for PhD was also a Nobel laureate. And, and he had won the uh, Nobel Prize in part because of work that he had done on, on labor uh, and, and things like raising of the minimum wage. And it was interesting because I would, she's like, well, you know, I understand why you don't get into economics 101. It's when you get a little bit higher that you understand these equations. I was like, okay, great. Show me which one of those equations demonstrates that supply or the demand curves slope upward instead of downward. And, and what that <laughs> means is as something becomes more expensive, the demand for it usually um, decreases relative to what it would have been if it was cheaper. And th this is what we, again, I'm using logic to say this is kind of how we understand reality. If I put if I park a Mercedes out front and I say it's two dollars, everyone wants it. If I say it's fifty thousand dollars, fewer people want it, or fewer people can afford it. If I say it's a million dollars, fewer people can afford it. Right? Even that that's what a, a demand curve is. But she was saying, well, oh, this equation. Well, that equation didn't answer what my argument was. And so what we're what we're seeing here, and the reason why this is so important is because a lot of people get this. They will make a comment. And then someone will say, oh, I didn't realize you were an expert on this. I didn't realize you were an economist. I didn't realize you were a biologist. What's interesting is the moment you use that logic back. So, for instance, when our, you know, our illustrious member of the Supreme Court, who at the time was a nominee, stated, I don't know the answer to what a woman is. I'm not a biologist. And then immediately when the vote was overturned, everyone understood, you know, oh, that this is, this is a decision that's going to affect women. And so conservatives started saying, oh, I didn't realize you were an amateur biologist, or I didn't realize you were, you were a biologist. Like, you don't have to be a biologist. You can, you, can know what thing, you can know things based off of what experts say, what biologists say. Like, oh, well, then how come your Supreme Court nominee couldn't do that? <laughs> right? So it, it was this idea that if I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to question it based off of whether or not I consider you to be an expert. But then the moment I apply that same logic to, to them – they return with, well, I might not be an expert, but I can read what experts say. This is the problem with arguing with uh, postmodernists, which honestly, that might be a whole nother episode in the yeah. future because it really does feel like that the only science the left cares about is the political science. Well, and, and we're, we're going to get into that a little bit more. The, the thing I want to lay out here is almost every conservative I know has encountered this problem. Yes. 
This problem of when you opine on something or you offer an opinion on something, you're immediately asked if you're an expert in that area. So two things we want to get across. One, you don't have to be an expert to make a good argument. You also don't have to be an expert to be correct. Right? The, the number one thing I, I want people to take away from this whole concept of, of expertise is if you're an expert in something, it should give us a higher level of confidence that whatever you're proposing is correct. It doesn't make it correct. So let's ask the question, what is an expert? So let's just go to a basic definition. We're using Merriam-Webster. Definition of an expert, one with the special skill or knowledge representing mastery of a particular subject. I, I think most of us would look at that and say, okay, that, that seems to be... I have a question, though. How do you define mastery of a particular subject? We'd have to, look, we'd have to go then do the thing of, of... We'd have to look at the definition of mastery. But I, I think what most of us understand by this, with a special skill or knowledge representing mastery of a particular subject, mm-hmm. right? the question would be, to your point... Without specifically defining mastery, what do we really mean by that? And that's where I want to go into this next article. And this came from, uh, I think it was Harvard Business Review, Harvard Business Review. And I'm not saying these guys are right or that this is the official way that we tell, but I think they came up with some interesting criteria. So okay. here's, here's what they said. They said, how then can you tell when you're dealing with a genuine expert? They said real expertise must pass three tests. This is their this is their take on it, right? First, it must lead to performance that is consistently superior to that of the expert's peers. So, if you're a biologist or if you're a carpenter or if you're an HVAC technician or if you're a teacher, they're saying that the first test with respect to expertise is is that your performance is consistently superior to the people around you. That's interesting. All right, let's look at the second test. Real expertise produces concrete results. And then they give an example. Brain surgeons, for example, not only must be skillful with their scalpels, but it must also have successful outcomes with their patients. So what they're saying here is that just because you can theoretically do something in the classroom or in theory... Or with an equation, I know where this or is on going. a chalkboard, doesn't mean that you can effectively do it in real life. Essentially, where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. So, I, I could I can understand all of the potential theories with respect to driving a truck, but if every time I get behind the wheel, I crash into people. No one's going to say, oh, well, this guy's clearly an expert. Well, because, well, yeah, yeah. You'd be an expert into crashing. Yeah. Look at look at how good a job they did explaining the internal combustion <laughs> engine and the physics of driving a truck. But if every time they get behind the wheel, they crash the truck, we don't consider that person to be an expert on driving trucks. Yeah. They, they may have some degree of expertise within physics. Does this mean that, that there's some fields that they're physically cannot be experts in? Like there can't be experts in philosophy. We're gonna we're gonna scroll down because that actually comes up. They actually address this next. Okay. Why I found, and there's parts of the story. Finally, true expertise can be replicated and measured in the lab. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is authoritative in the sense that if you don't meet these three criteria, you can't be considered an expert. But I do think there's something interesting here. 
because they, they've come up with a couple of ones, right? One is expertise relative to other people that are operating in the same field. Mm -hmm. One has to do with concrete, practical examples of your methodology or your theory producing superior results, right? The other has to do with can it be replicated and measured? So can we actually measure the results in some sort of tangible way? Or is this all theory in your opinion? Right? So, for instance, arts kind of come into this to some degree, right? If somebody paints a picture, right, is, is there a way to measure whether or not this piece of art was better than that piece of art? And the answer is like, yeah, you, you can on some criteria, some people may choose to accept that criteria. Some people might not. But the point here is they want measurable, objective ways that we can determine whether or not you've achieved these things that we're using as tests for expertise. Okay. Now, they go on to say that in skill in some fields, such as sports, is easy to measure, right? Competitions are standardized so that everyone competes in a similar environment. All competitors have the same start and finish line so that everyone can agree on who came in first. That standardization permits comparisons among individuals over time. Scroll down here a little bit. And it's certainly possible in business as well. Like, so for instance, in the early days of Walmart, Sam Walton arranged competitions among store managers to identify those who had stores had the highest profitability. Um, scroll down here. So you'll notice the first two examples they gave within sports and sports and business. Okay. Because it was easy to come up with ways. If your business is, how do we measure if your business is successful? It's profitable. Okay, how, how do we measure profitability? Well, we look at the various things that you put in place within that store, and then we can make direct correlations between whether or not that practice contributed to the profitability. Yeah, so, I mean, that, I, I, again, I think that that's a, a good way to define, like, expert. Like, I actually really like the Walmart example. Yeah. In part because we did a Y Minute on Walmart yeah. <laughs> uh, earlier this year, but um, the the thing that would confuse me and potentially some other listeners of this show is, okay, so we can identify certain fields. I think everybody kind of has an idea in their head of like an example of this, May, maybe something that they personally know. Yeah. But in politics and in economics and in philosophy, those are really muddy fields. There is very little debate over whether or not this particular Walmart did more sales in quarter three yeah. than this one. But there's tons of debate over whether or not Keynesianism is a successful, yeah. you know, economic theory or whether or not, you know, the government should increase aggregate demand as the, you know, way to boost an economy. Like, like those are things that people don't seem to agree on. Whereas, you can point to numbers and say this Walmart was the top performing Walmart in the country. And there'll be very, very few people that will disagree with that at the end of the day. Now, some people might go out there and say, oh, well, you can't trust the numbers or, you know, I disagree with this statistic. But at the end of the day, it seems like most people would 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 agree, regardless of their politics or their worldview, most people would agree that, okay, Sam Walton has identified this Walmart as being the best Walmart in the country mm -hmm. because it did more sales. Very few people are going to argue about that. Yeah. A lot of people are going to argue about, you know, whether or not socialism is a good ideology. Well, and, and so, and here's what they say next, which again, I, I don't necessarily agree with all of this, but I think it, I, it seems rational. Okay. Nonetheless, it can, it often can be difficult to measure expert performance. Oh, here we go. For example, <laughs> in projects that take months or even years to complete and to which dozens of individuals may contribute, expert leadership is similarly difficult to assess. 
Most leadership challenges are highly complex and specific to a given company, which makes it hard to compare performance across companies and situations. So for instance, um, let, let's use the Walmart example. Um, if they have several different competing Walmarts and some did better than others, you could theorize that, oh, that must be because of the management practices used in one. But it could also have to do with something else. For instance, was there some sort of like, I don't know, a disaster in a particular area that could have affected, oh, well, you know, there wasn't as many stores in this area, so they drove a little bit further to use this Walmart Oh, I could think here. of a bunch right? of so examples, yeah. So the question, and this is where it goes back into going into the lab and saying, okay, how many different factors do we take into consideration in order to determine what contributed to outcome? Yeah. Right? It goes, one methodology we use to deal with these challenges is to take a representative situation and reproduce it in the laboratory. For example, we present emergency room nurses with scenarios that si uh, simulate life-threatening situations. Afterward, we compare the nurses' responses in the lab with actual outcomes in the real world. We have found that performance in simulations in medicine, chess, and sports closely correlates with objective measurements of exact expert performance, such as a chess player's track record in winning matches. So again... This is talking about how there there is ways that you can develop training and there are certain principles mm -hmm. which can apply uh, across the board. So again, to your point that there are some areas where it's more difficult to measure expertise. Mm -hmm. And again, in the article under what is an expert, um, they, they actually provide some really fascinating examples. So here's this one. In 1976, a fascinating event referred to as the Judgment of Paris took place. An English-owned wine shop in Paris organized a blind tasting in which nine French wine experts rated French and California wines, 10 whites and 10 reds. The results shocked the wine world. California wines received the highest scores from the panel. Even more surprising, during the tasting, the experts often mistook the American wines for the French wines and vice versa. Two assumptions were challenged that day, because this is interesting. Two assumptions were challenged. The first was the hitherto unquestioned superiority of French wines over American wines, right? And so, again, depending on, on your entry point into this conversation, when you read this, you may automatically think, especially if you're predisposed to like American wines or to just be patriotic and want America to win, be like, aha, see, this proves that the experts preferred American wines to French wines. That's one assumption. But there was a second assumption that the judges genuinely possessed elite knowledge of wine. That was more interesting and revolutionary, right? The tasting suggested that the alleged wine experts were no more accurate in distinguishing wines under blind taste conditions than regular wine drinkers, a fact later confirmed by our laboratory tests. Current research has revealed many other fields where there is no scientific evidence that supposed expertise leads to superior performance. One study showed that psychotherapists with advanced degrees and decades of experience aren't reliably more successful in their treatment of randomly assigned patients than novice therapists with just three months of training. There are even examples of expertise seeming to decline with experience. The longer physicians have been out of training, for example, the less able they are to identify unusual diseases of the lungs or heart because they encounter these illnesses so rarely. Doctors quickly forget their characteristic features and have difficulty diagnosing them. Performance picks up only after the doctors undergo a refresher course. So the interesting, the interesting discovery with all of this was to say that expertise is a little bit more complex as a theory. But I think what most of us are encountering a lot of times is mm. expertise is automatically conveyed to someone 
based off of their academic credentials. Almost always, yes. I, when I when I see again, when I get slammed by someone on the left who says, "Oh, are you an expert economist?" What they usually mean is, "Do you are you an economist professionally, or do you have the requisite academic credentials to be declared an economist?" And you you and look, this isn't new. This isn't new. I'm going to bring up one other case because I just remembered it. This was in Amity Schley's book, The Forgotten Man. When FDR was setting up the, the, the New Deal, all right, one of the things that they did was they, they brought in all these expert economists and they set up all these rules for the economy. And there was this family, and it was called, I think it was called the, the uh, Schechter Chicken Case. There was this family that was violating the rules because one of the rules under the FDR New Deals during the Great Depression that was supposedly helping us get, a, get out of the Great Depression was that you couldn't pick the chicken that you wanted to buy. You couldn't pick it. A company couldn't let you pick it if they were selling it to you. Well, this company had violated that rule, right? There was a similar case that had to do with dry cleaning because there was a company that the FDR administration was suing because they were selling dry cleaning cheaper than what the government-mandated price fixing allowed them to do. And what was interesting is they bring in these economists and these attorneys were essentially saying, are you an economist? Are you, do you actually understand this? What sort of credentials do you have? And one of the defendants came back and said, I'm not an economist, but I'm an economizer. I know how to run my business. I know what my customers want and need within a particular situation. I know what will lead them to buy more chicken or more dry cleaning. And your rules are preventing me from doing that. Yeah. But what was so interesting, and this goes into something that we'll talk about later with Thomas Sowell, is that they were appealing to the authority of academically trained economists, and they were saying that because they had these credentials and because they could wax intellectually about all these theories and equations, that they were a better measure of what success looked like than the person that was actually on the hook for getting it right within their own business, or they would go out of business. I have a, a really good, more recent example than the Great Depression of this. Um, Keith Gill, who is better known by a username that I will not be saying. Um, <laughs> uh, he's also known as Roaring Kitty. He is the man who took $53,000 and he turned it into over $50 million on betting for the mother of all short squeezes on GameStop last year. Yeah, He has no academic credentials when it comes to you know, economics or trading. He's not a hedge fund manager or anything like that. And yet his return on that $53,000 investment blew out of the water any hedge fund that you can think of. Any. He never has to do anything ever again. Yeah. He, he like, like the percentage return on that is like, I don't know, like like 100,000% or something like that. And yet somebody could point to him and be like, oh, well, you don't have any of those degrees. How many years of Goldman Sachs do you have? <laughs> yeah. You don't. You didn't go to Harvard Business School or anything like. He doesn't have any of that expertise, and yet he made more money in one trade, starting with fifty three thousand dollars, than most people working on Wall Street will ever make in their entire life. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and here's and here's the interesting part. None of that makes him an expert on things like working on Wall Street, mm -mm. and none of it was relevant. To what he did to make $53 million, right? None of it was relevant. This is why, again, the frustration here, I think, for a lot of conservatives is because 
we, we keep finding ourselves in these situations where we don't claim to be an expert within a particular field, but we could look at a particular piece of data, use logic, use our experience, our practical experience within life, and come to what we conclude is a reasonable conclusion or understanding of something. And then when we get told, well, are you an expert? There's this automatic defensive impulse we have to be like, well, no, I'm, I guess I'm not technically an expert because we value that statement. We value that term. And then it's like, well, okay, is, is there something wrong with what I'm saying? And once you get confronted with that, you almost have kind of like these two impulses. One impulse is to question yourself. The other impulse is to say, well, screw this. The experts keep getting it wrong. What do I care? What experts have to say if they keep getting it wrong? And this is where we have to distinguish between two things. There's expertise and there's somebody identifying at it or being described as an expert. Yeah. Right? Expertise as measured, and I, and I think the way that Harvard Business Review measured it here was, was pretty effective. All right? Do, do you, does your performance in this particular area outpace the performance of others? Right? Is there objective criteria that we can look at in order to measure whether or not what you're suggesting actually works in reality? Now, can you be an expert in a field and get it wrong? Sure, you're not infallible. Expertise does not equal infallibility. But if you're a so-called expert and you continually get it wrong, or as what we've been seeing recently, if you're a so-called expert and not only do you continually get it wrong, but you demand that anybody who disagree with you be punished or censored. Now I'm really going to call into question your credibility. Now I don't care what degree you have. I don't care what credentials you have. At that point, I'm even less inclined to care about certain successes you, have may, you may have had. Because if you feel that somebody opposing what it is that you're putting out as your theory or your practice... If you feel that person needs to be punished or censored, I'm starting to become really skeptical in your own confidence in your position. Because you should be able to make mincemeat of somebody that's coming at you with a bogus or ridiculous theory. And you should be able to do it without telling me you're an expert. Because here's, here's the beauty of understanding logic and reasoning and, and rationality. Here's the beauty of it. It's there for everybody. It is there for everybody. If you want to talk about something that is truly, if you want to, excuse me, if you want to talk about something that is truly egalitarian, it's the truth. The truth is egalitarian because regardless of who you are, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of your credentials, the truth is the truth. And being able to use these processes that belongs to everybody to be able to arrive at it. And if you're wrong, you're not wrong because an expert says so. You're wrong because someone has demonstrated using the same tools that you have available on why you're wrong. And if they can't do that, then their expertise doesn't mean much. I, I do find it very interesting and somewhat contradictory that many of the same people who will lean heavily on the whole trust the experts narrative, the appeal to authority, you know, where's your degree, are the same people who don't think that there's things like objective truth. Yeah. Well, if there's no objective truth, then how can there be experts to begin with? Oh, yeah. No, I love this idea. Well, that's your truth. 
Uh, okay, well, then okay, my, so then there's no appeal to authority. Then. then, then my truth is I'm an expert. Yeah. Well, but that's not my truth. Fine. That doesn't make. But when you when you come to me and you say you're not an expert, but you're also someone that believes in this whole idea of oh, well, my truth, your truth, the whole deal. Then what you what you've just told me is okay. It's your truth that I'm not an expert, but your truth has no bearing has, has no greater bearing on reality than my truth. So you making that statement is declaring to the universe that you simultaneously think I'm wrong and that you simultaneously think it doesn't matter and there's no way to effectively measure it. <laughs> I think ultimately one of the things that we're dealing with right now is is this idea that everyone needs to just stay in their lane. And you can't think outside of whatever your little portion of reality is. That's a good point. And so if you don't stay in your lane, and, and we see it on both sides of the aisle, um, I'll give you a really good example. When we see celebrities acting like morons and uh, advocating for socialism and things of that nature, you get a lot of people on the right. They're like, just stick to acting. Get What makes you think you have anything to say about any of real life? You're so out of touch, blah, blah, blah. Um, and while I actually agree with that sentiment, because I really, really would rather just watch the movie and... <laughs> And be like, you're a great actor. Can you just stick to acting? Because now I now I really dislike you in reality, and I don't want to watch your films. Um, but I think that ultimately everyone has a right to give an opinion on things that they've looked into and um, and information that they have consumed. We all get to have an opinion. Yeah. And uh, and no one actually needs to stay in their lane now. With that comes the responsibility of dealing with when you're wrong and the backlash that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those celebrities can go ahead and speak out and, and advocate for whatever they want to advocate for and use their authority as a spokesperson to do stupid things and advocate for stupid things. Yeah. However, now you're going to lose a huge portion of your viewership. And if that was worth it to you, it's worth it to you. And, um, and I, I feel like, we kind of have this going on right now where it's, it's like, uh, this is where you should stay. And this is where you, this other person should stay. And it really reminds me of uh, this time I was, I was talking with this gal who was German. She's from Germany and our kids were playing soccer and she was just shocked at how much individuality we have here. And the fact that when you're put into a soccer team, your soccer team gets switched every so often and you're not always on the same team where she's from, you get, you're on the team and you never leave that team or you're, you're in this field. They kind of cookie cutter you for this field and you never leave that field. That is what you are meant for now. And you don't go outside of that. And it's, it's really this weird sort of socialist, like holdover, um, idea where people go into these boxes and that's where they get to stay. And here we don't have that. And we don't have that in the area of thought either. And so if you have researched something, you have every right to give your opinion on it. However, you need to be willing to change your mind if evidence has come to bear that is, that is you know, contrary to uh, what you've established. So, well, and, you, and you have to be, because I, I think you're right. I think in another category, we see this a lot of time. It's like, you're not allowed to have an opinion on this because you're this ethnicity. Or you're not allowed to have an opinion on this because you're, you're a man. this sex. You're not allowed to have an opinion on this because... And, and it's interesting that that, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to translate in other fields, right? Like, I don't get to look at a, an anti-war protester and be like, well, you've never been to war. You don't get to protest this. Stay in yeah. your lane. And, and not only do I not get to do that, I would never dream of doing that because you, you can still, my question on something, obviously, if you have experience within a particular field, <clears throat> all things being equal, 
we, we, as a shortcut in our own mind, when we're logically looking at something, if somebody has experience within a field, we tend to give their opinion on something greater weight. And that, that makes sense. We give them greater weight until they demonstrate that their experience or their expertise or their study doesn't actually yield better results. And I, I, I want to, I want to point something out here. Um, let, let's go to, let's skip over and go to the intellectuals and in society for uh, Thomas Sowell. I want to, I want to point something out here because this is, this is really interesting. And, and I think that um, in, in many respects, I, I like what Thomas Sowell has to say right here when he talks about intellectuals and he kind of defines like the intellectual class. And some people have accused Thomas Sowell of being anti-intellectual, which is kind of funny since he's like spent his entire you know career primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in academia. And he's considered an intellectual. Um, but one of the things that he says is that an in, in intellectual's end product, the way he distinguishes an intellectual from somebody else, intellectual's end product is an idea, right, or, or, or a concept. And one of the things he points out is that a lot of these, a lot of some of the worst ideas that you've ever seen propagated have been propagated by intellectuals, whether it be, you know, Karl Marx or he brings up like Noam Chomsky and some, some of these other areas. And <clears throat> it's this idea that not only do they pay no consequence or price for being wrong, but when their theories are executed and something horrible happens, they're oftentimes promoted or given tenure within academic institutions. Like it doesn't actually hurt them to be wrong. He goes, and when he notices that it's fascinating about this, he goes like, he takes Noam Chomsky as an example. Noam Chomsky is, is a world-renowned linguist. And he points out that if Noam Chomsky had just stayed within his, his professional field of linguistics, he would certainly be renowned within that field, but nobody else would probably know about him. The reason why people know about Noam Chomsky is because he's gone outside of his lane into other areas, which as we stated earlier, is perfectly fine. But a lot of times it's like, oh, he's a PhD. Not in public policy, not in any of the things he's talking about. And so his PhD in linguistics does not give him additional authority in these other categories simply because he has a doctorate in one narrow field. Now, does that mean he's wrong in those other areas that he just decided to opine on? No. But by the same token, I'm not going to say PhD over here automatically equals some degree of academic excellence or expertise over here. You're going to have to, to start at, at kind of the same level as the rest of us if you're talking about these other areas. And a lot of the, a lot of the things that he is most known for are absurd, like absolute absurdity in economics, absolute absurdity in public policy. Now, has that, has that resulted in some sort of you know, negative consequence for him within academia? No, quite the opposite. He is known more for his statements on, political, on public policy and on economics, which are absurd, than he is for his work in linguistics, which by all accounts is very good. And, and Thomas Sowell brings up that there's this temptation for even people that might have a certain degree of expertise in one field to then try to transfer that yes. knowledge or expertise into other fields for which they have no special qualifications. You get this all the yeah. time. Nor have they have they made good arguments, right? So keep in mind, what Thomas Sowell is saying is not saying is stay in your lane, you don't know what you're talking about. What Thomas Sowell is saying is that when you venture out and you attempt to bring your credibility with you into these other fields, A, that's not appropriate, and B, credibility or not, you still have to make good arguments. And the way that we're going to measure those arguments is how they work in reality, not how they work with your classroom. 
Yeah. I would never I would never trust Magnus Carlsen to be my mechanic. Yeah. He's like the world famous like like grandmaster in chess right now or something like that. But like he's great at chess, but that doesn't, you know, to your point, somebody could be, you know, the top chess player in the entire world, but they wouldn't know a single thing about how to fix yeah. an engine, yeah. right? Or, or how to even like change oil or something like that in a car. And we kind of just take that for granted when it's something benign like that, yeah. right? You know, th th that I would never trust a chess master to, to be a mechanic. But we don't apply that same exact logic when it comes to politically charged issues yeah. or issues related to the economy at large. All the time we get people that are experts in certain fields um, but then when they opine on politics or they opine on public policy or economics or monetary policy, we don't, you know, scrutinize them the same degree that we would scrutinize somebody like Magnus Carlson if he wanted to become a mechanic. Yeah. Right. We, we would be very skeptical of, of one of those, but we're not skeptical of the other one. And what's incredible is, is that the consequences of bad decision-making when it comes to politics or public policy or monetary policy is way worse than bad consequences with respect to who you take your car to for the mechanic. The worst case scenario for that is your car breaks down and you're yeah. out some money. The worst case scenario on taking bad advice on monetary policy is what we are currently <laughs> yeah. living in. You can collapse an economy. Um, well, and, and I, I think that the part that is becoming increasingly frustrating um, again, for many of us is we, we do value expertise. We value the laws of logic. We value rationality. We value, we value empiricism. And the reason why we value these things is because it does allow us to discover certain realities, whether they be, you know, purely practical about like, how does a car move? Right. Versus things that are, are more moral in nature. Why, why certain social arrangements work better than other ones or produce better results than other ones. So the, these things are tools that we want to use and we want them to be tools that we can all use together, right? We want them to be tools that we, we recognize and value as being available to everyone in order to come to reasonable conclusions, regardless of what your particular interest or, or expertise might be. But I want you to, I want to point to, go back to that previous one. This, this was an article in Newsweek. This is the part where I, I, I had somebody get mad at me on Twitter because I tweeted out, the next time the left tells you to follow the science, remind them that they canceled it. <laughs> and the reason why I did, and I did a picture of this. This, is, this was a, a, a pamphlet that was called Talking About Race, Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States. And if you look down on this pamphlet, which by the way, was, this, was, this was not put up in some random you know, Antifa meeting somewhere. This was put up at the Smithsonian. But if you look at it, here's what they list as an aspect or assumption of white culture. Emphasis on the scientific method, objective, rational, linear thinking, cause and effect relationships, and quantitative emphasis. The, many of the same, not all of them, let's be honest, but many of the same people that are sitting there telling us to follow the science when it's Dr. Fauci telling us what to do, cheer this sort of postmodernist rubbish, and, and I would even argue racist notion that objective, rational, linear thinking, cause and effect relationships, the scientific method, quantitative, that these are somehow aspects of whiteness, 
ladies and gentlemen, okay, Whitey didn't come up with this. I, I think that one of the best examples that we can think of to disprove this is Thomas Sowell. It's, it's the, it, what's so frustrating to me is that I look at stuff like this and what it is, it, it's not only contradictory in their argument because what you'll, what you'll do is you'll show them something like this and say, you don't get to tell me to trust the science and then tell me science an attribute of whiteness and I need to control and understand and potentially walk away from as much of my whiteness as possible. That's a contradiction. Well, and, then, and then what they respond with is, oh, well, see, you're engaging in this preferential treatment for Western logic. Now, what they just did in that moment is, they, is they're trying to suggest that narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Or that in some contradictions are just a natural part of life. Whenever somebody tells you that, look back at them and be like, no, it isn't. And if they say, yes, it is, they just destroyed their own argument. Why? Because they told you that, well, no, no, you know, contradictions are perfectly fine. But then when you contradicted their statement and they attempted to correct you, what did they demonstrate? It's not perfectly fine. Oh, it's not perfectly fine. They weren't happy with you engaging I, in a contradiction when it affected them. They were only happy in the subjective application of contradictions when they're trying to reconcile their statement one moment, which is follow the science, do what Fauci tells you to. And yeah. the next moment they're telling you the scientific method is an aspect of whiteness. Well, again, like I said earlier, that's the problem with debating with postmodernists because what you have is is you've got a set and, and this is the issue with with you know debating about politics or economics in general is that there's like you can so so, so to, to go back to the point that you made at the very beginning of this episode the whole you know example of it's raining outside being an objective fact it's either a fact or it's not a fact like there is no debate that it, whether or not it's raining, you know, right here at this place. Now you could say it's raining here, but not raining somewhere else, sure. right? But but it is either raining here or not. It can't be raining and not raining at the exact same time yeah. at the exact same place because that's contradictory. Yes, there's very little debate about that, but there's an endless amount of debates about the most important things that impact all of us, which are, are things about public policy or economics, and. There's an entire group of people out there that there's no amount of evidence that you can provide. There's no amount of logical argumentation that you could provide. They have their worldview, which is a self-contradictory worldview, but they have it nonetheless, and they are just willing to stick by it no matter how much you argue with them and how much evidence you provide. And they will say, trust the science one day, and then on the other day, they'll say the science is racist only insofar as it suits their, their political end states. And there's a giant number of people, many of which are in office, yeah. that, that operate on that. How can you have, I don't think you, I, I think that part of the reason that conservatives are now moving in this direction where in some ways we're actually overcorrecting, right? And you've got many people that are now saying, well, I'm not gonna trust anything the experts have to say. I'm not gonna trust anything that these, these people are, 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 are in, this, in those positions have to say. And I think in large part, the reason that conservatives are acting like this, and we've already pointed out how in some cases that might be inappropriate, while the motivations behind it are very appropriate. I think the reason that conservatives are acting like this is because it's like they're they're the only they're they're in a room with everybody that's taking crazy pills. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to have a conversation with somebody that is just denying reality itself when it suits a political endgame. But when it suits a political end game for them to not deny reality, then they won't deny it. Yeah. But they'll flip. It's like they have a switch that they'll just flip on and off depending on the circumstances. 
insofar as does it does it suit my political purposes to make this argument? Sure, then I'll make that argument. Yeah. But the second that it doesn't suit my purposes, well, I'll do the exact opposite. Yeah. And so many conservatives have now realized, oh, the, these people are just completely irrational, and and I can't have a discussion with them. So I'm going to over uh, correct now and just say, well, forget all of you people. Yeah. I'm not going to trust anything you have to say even in the rare cases where some of these people are correct, right? Well, you know, the, 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 the you, example is, is that the government got it wrong very badly about COVID. So therefore I'm going to disregard the CDC's guidelines about washing your hands or brushing your teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and how am I supposed to, to tell a conservative to not question that stuff based on everything? Again, brushing your teeth is, is good. It is, you know, a smart thing to do, but, because the same people who got it so wrong on things like COVID or so wrong about, you know, the stock market bubble or the everything bubble, the same people that got that wrong when they make benign claims, yeah. we've got a huge chunk of people suspect. now that, that they're suspect. They've, yeah. they've, they've torched their credibility. Well, can I say that this is, a, sorry, you were going to say. I something. was going to say that it, it does seem like, it, except for when an expert agrees with you, yeah. then it's, yeah. let's trust the experts again. Um, you can always find an expert that will say what, whatever it is you think. I mean, you really can. And it's, it's crazy. So because, because like, let's take climate change, for example, you have a huge number of climate change experts who uh, all agree on one thing, but you can always find a handful that disagree with that. Yeah. And instead of going, well, why do they disagree? Let's dig into the evidence here. What what are the uh, variables that they're pointing out that are being ignored or whatever it might be? Let's find out why they disagree. Instead of doing that, instead, like I, I just quickly pulled it up. You've got headlines that say things like this. It's settled. 90 to 100% of climate experts agree. <laughs> I won't even finish. Yeah. Four out of five experts agree. Uh, the experts agree. Oh, um, climate change is real. 99% of experts agree, or at least 97% of experts agree. I've got so a at this point now, you're just piling up experts against experts. And now it's, it's okay, so what makes these people an expert and what makes these oh, well, people the not an expert? Oh, well, it's the fact that they're expert. a majority. They're over 51%. I, here's a quote, and I can't remember who said it, but it was very, very funny. There, there was this, this um, physics, um, uh, conference about physics. And all these people were throwing out all these different ideas about, you know, like the origin of the universe or something like that. And then there was like this vote about what happened, you know. Yeah. And then one of these um, physicists got up on stage and said, who here thinks the laws of physics are decided by a majority vote? Yeah. And everybody started laughing because even though they were, even though they, they were trying to, to get an answer to this question yeah. and everybody voted in a certain way, at the same token... Now, to their credit, everybody there also realized we could all be wrong yeah. about this. Just because a majority of them voted a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that that's actually what, you know, how, how something works. And so I, I love that quote that, and I can't remember who said it, but I love that quote that, you know, who here thinks the the laws of physics are decided by a majority vote? They're definitely not. If a majority of people didn't think <laughs> gravity existed, that doesn't mean gravity would suddenly yeah. switch off, yeah. right? So like... Some of it is in how they're analyzing the data. And so maybe they're ignoring certain uh, factors that, that another scientist maybe thinks this factor actually has quite a bit of bearing on this mm -hmm. and they're ignoring it. So I disagree with their conclusion on this. And when, when me as a non-scientist looks at that and goes, well, I'd like to know 
you know, what these factors are and, and why this didn't, why this scientist disagreed or, yeah. or what, um, instead it's, it's, well, you don't have a right to question these factors. It was enough. The, like these 90% of, of experts or scientists agreed that this factor didn't really matter. So it shouldn't matter to you either. Well, and I think the other thing that's, that's interesting is that there's this argument here, here's why so many of these arguments become highly contentious. If it was 97% of scientists believe that, you know, climate change is a real threat, so they're all going to buy electric cars. We'd be like, cool. But it's not. It's 97% of scientists who were funded by governments <laughs> have come to certain conclusions, which include giving the government significantly more power over what you drive. Then it's like, whoa, wait a second. What, what are you doing now? Well, 97% of us agreed. Mm-hmm. And okay, follow okay. the money too. That, follow the money too. That's that's cool, but I, I want to understand. You, you're no longer saying I agree on this, and so it's going to affect my life. You're saying we agree on this, so it's going to affect your life, and we're going to impose it by law. That's yeah. a very different proposition. And not only that, but when funding is directly tied to what your results and your findings are going to be, yeah, you have a, an incentive, a perverse incentive, to make sure you find what you need to find to get more funding. Yeah. I, I've got a I've got an example on the humanity side that that can relate to um, potentially some of the political stuff that we talk about. A, a good example is is that uh, consensus can change over time too, and and a good example is that a hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty years ago, you could probably say ninety seven percent of historians would argue that Troy never existed. Yeah. Until Heinrich Schleiman, I think is who it was, that discovered Troy, yeah. the actual ancient city. Yeah. And, amateur and, and amateur yeah, archaeologist. Amateur archaeologist, yeah. not an expert, or at least a, a mid-tier, lower-tier yeah. expert, discovered the city in the very tail end of the 19th century. And suddenly the consensus went from 97% of historians and archaeologists said Troy's a myth that never existed. Yeah. Boom, suddenly it becomes a, a fact. And, and another example is the Hittites. Yeah. Nobody thought oh, the Hittites they, they were use, real they people. Use, they use that to actually try to disprove scripture by saying, well, the, oh, the Bible keeps mentioning the Hittites. There's no archaeological evidence. Well, now the Hittites is a foregone conclusion. You would be, you would be run out of his, historical or archaeological circles for suggesting the Hittites never existed Yeah. So at this point. There's, there's points in time where an overwhelming majority of historians or archaeologists could argue this never existed or this was a certain way until a new discovery comes along that objectively nobody can de- can yeah. debate that that the site of Troy 4 is real yeah. right and nobody can debate that the hittites actually were a civilization and so i i find it really interesting that when you take a snapshot at a certain point in time you can say oh 97% of people agree with me okay but that again in of itself doesn't necessarily mean that that is objectively true and what I find so fascinating is that when it comes to debates over things, as I said earlier, that affect all of us, things like public policy, you know, things like economic policy or monetary policy, I could get I could get a hundred Marxists in a room yeah. and say ninety seven percent of them say that the government should be in control of the means of production. Yeah. But like yeah. I, again, that doesn't actually well, this- that has no bearing on the fact that it. it if I will bet anything, including my life, and probably my life would be actually forfeit if you actually adopted a Marxist system yeah. of government. Um, so I, I well, there, there's this leads me to my final kind of the final point, the final takeaway that I really want the audience to to understand here. And 
this is this is not the empirical versus the logical. It's both. And I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back to that discussion that that I had, right? I, I was sitting here debating with someone who is, you know, a, an understood or a recognized expert, academic expert within a particular field. And we were talking about the various studies. It's like, well, not all studies are created equal. I, I understand that, even though the preponderance of the studies and the discussion that we were having favored my position. And I said, but this isn't, this isn't just about studies because the, the statement was, is, well, in my field, if the data doesn't bear it out, we change the theory. I said, no, not first of all, that's not necessarily true in your field. Second of all, if data violates something that we understand to be a long-held, logically consistent view of reality, we don't just automatically throw out the long-held, you know, logically consistent view of reality. Because with enough data, you can prove just about anything. And without data, you can prove just about anything, right? The, the issue is, it's not just the data that you have, it's certain conclusions you make and certain biases that you take into analyzing that data in the first place. And one of the things that I think conservatives have been kind of um, intimidated with is this, will this study, will this study, will this study, will this study. Part of our question now is who conducted and who funded the study? Because we, we've, we've already come to the conclusion that most of the institutions right now, which convey credentials, academic credentials, are dominated by a certain worldview. It is a left-wing ideology. It's a left-wing worldview with respect to those institutions. So right off the bat, you can show me a lot of data, but my fundamental question is going to be, how did you analyze that data and what biases did you bring into it when you were looking at it? And that's a fair question. It's a fair question we ask them. It's a fair question when they ask us. But one of the reasons why you will see us put such an emphasis on insisting on logical consistency and honesty Whenever we view anything, it's because it puts you in the best position to make sound arguments. And it puts you in the best position to understand bad arguments, even when it's coming from an expert that has a pile of studies to back up what they're saying. Because what, what, I've, what I've come into contact with more and more and more as I read through these studies or as I read through reports is that I will see this kind of cheap, intellectual dishonesty in the sort of arguments that are being made. But there, there was an article I read today, and it was from Education Week. So this is a publication that's supposed to focus on education, which we would think would value critical thinking. And they started off this article by saying that Republican legislators are, are passing all, these, all of this legislation restricting the way that teachers can talk about race or can talk about sexuality and they're claiming that the parents don't want this discussed within the classroom. But this new sweeping survey demonstrated that parents do want it discussed about it within certain realm. Right off the bat, the very part... Now, did the study exist? Absolutely. Did the study reflect what she was saying? Yes. So what's wrong with the article? Well, she started off by saying the Republican legislators are claiming the parents don't want this discussed with their children. Well, no, in reality, it's how it's being discussed, what age it's being discussed, the specifics of what's being discussed. See, there was a whole bunch of nuance there that was just ignored because they had an agenda when they were writing that article. And we're supposed to look at it as like, well, this is just a objective reporting and analysis. No, it wasn't. And you can tell it wasn't by the way it was organized. The same thing applies to data. Empiricism is a fine thing. 
But if it's not looked at logically and transparently, it can lead you to a lot of really, really bad conclusions. So the takeaway from all of this is, look, the problem is not expertise. The problem is not even someone being an expert. The problem is someone relying on their either perceived or in some cases even actual expertise to be sufficient to prove whatever they're saying is true. So when we look at this, we should look at it with skepticism, but not with petulance. Petulance is, I don't like you. I don't agree with the institution you came from, so I'm not, I'm not going to listen to anything you say. I'm not going to agree with anything you say. That's petulance. Skepticism is saying, I, I respect the fact that you may have a degree on this. I respect the fact that you might have practical experience within this particular field. But if you want to convince me, you're going to have to demonstrate logically how you're correct. Empirically would be nice. But even if you show me data which is violating what I know to be logically true, I'm going to be skeptical of that as well. And so the thing that I would encourage everybody to do is really focus in on, on the critical thinking aspect of all of this. Don't be intimidated by somebody that is saying that they're an expert. Don't be intimidated by somebody that's throwing a bunch of journals at you. All right, it is perfectly reasonable to go back and say, if you want me to believe what you're saying, I have some questions and I want those questions to be answered. If I spot logical contradictions in what you're saying, you're not going to convince me you're right because 97% of your colleagues agree with your logical contradiction. You're not going to convince me that you're correct based off of an appeal to authority or an appeal to popularity. And if I notice over time that you continually resort to these things, then your status as an expert is definitely going to be, it's definitely going to be something I question. That's not inappropriate. That's not petulant. That's actually a logical way to look at the overall status of the debate and the argumentation that's taking place. But on our side, we have to do a better job of actually understanding those basic laws of logic so that when we're analyzing something, we're making sure that we're being intellectually honest and intellectually consistent with respect to what we say, what we believe, and the justification that we use in order to try to convince someone why we think it's true. Not our truth, but true. An accurate reflection of reality. All right, we hope we found you this episode uh, beneficial. We th hope you found it helpful. Uh, please let us know in the comments section whether you're watching this on any one of the, the platforms that it's on. Also, consider going in and looking at our volley chat. Again, for those of you who are not aware, our volley chat is your opportunity to join kind of like a behind-the-scenes group where we go through, we discuss some of these issues in greater depth. We discuss future topics for uh, episodes. We have our people that you know come in there and they actually provide really good feedback. Sometimes they, they tell us where they think we got it wrong or they tell us where we think we left something out that we should have mentioned, and it, it does. It impacts the way we go forward in the future. So once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.